The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery, mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in him who, whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord, Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that is the exceeding greatness of his power to, to us would who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name all that is named. Not only in this world but also in which is to come and hath put all things under the feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray again. Loving Father, we ask you this morning that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things in your word. Father, we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. 
And Father, we pray that our hearts would sing with joy this morning as we again look to see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Word of God before us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, in everybody's life, influences of one kind or another. And uh, I want to make sure you understand that my life, my ministry, my understanding of Scripture has been influenced by certain men that I have come in contact with over the course of uh, 25, 26 years now. Two of them I'll let you know of. Number one is a fellow named John Piper. Uh, If you hear me preach long enough, you're going to hear some of Piper's ideas flowing through. I don't like the idea of plagiarism in any form, and so I try and make sure if I'm going to use something he says directly that I give him credit. But because his ministry, and I've read a number of his books, has kind of seeped through my life, I'll say things and express ideas that are influenced by him. And so I don't want to be you to be thinking that great thoughts came out of my head because um, I know myself well enough to know that not much great comes out of what's in there. The other one is a guy named Paul Washer uh, who has a tremendous understanding of the gospel. And he preaches the gospel unlike many other men I've ever met in my life. Yeah. I actually had the privilege to meet him and spend a week with him. Uh, an amazing guy. Having said all that, the other thing I want you to know is that we covered one verse last week and we're going to cover one verse this week. At this rate of speed, it'll take us roughly three and a half years to go all the way through Ephesians. I think that's a good thing. I have no problem with that personally, but I think it might be a little slow and I don't want it to be tedious. So I'm not going to cover every single verse in the book of Ephesians. I say that as my pathetic excuse for not looking at grace and peace to you from God our Father. I'm going to skip over that verse and dive in on Paul's prayer at verse number 3. And so the text for our message this morning is verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul almost always begins his letters, his messages with a greeting, an expression of prayer for them as an introduction. But Ephesians, in Ephesians, Paul begins his letter with an expression of praise that is an overflowing and a heaping up of words and concepts and sentence length ideas in one long, multi-layered, multi-faceted sentence. I read numerous commentators who tried to give some idea of categorizing his idea and outlines and so on. And the funny thing was, not one of the two of them, or not one of the 30 of them, even come close to agreeing. They couldn't agree on how it was supposed to be structured and broken down. And the reality is, you simply can't take something like this, this expression of praise, and structure it down into ideas. Paul is using like a Hebrew idea of praise, where he heaps up ideas and words and concepts to just overflow in praise to God for the new creation that we have in Christ Jesus It is literally one man's heart being poured out to God in praise. But the theology, the deep thinking, the understanding of God that flows through this prayer is amazing. We are privileged, if you like, to see in his prayer the overflow of Paul's heart love for 
Christ for God, his deep consideration of the things of God and the gospel. Now, we were created to glorify God in everything that we do. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We are commanded in Scripture to praise the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 104 and 35, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord. Even in the face of God's judgment, the, the psalmist just puts up his hand and says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. In Psalm 117, verse 1, he says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. We as 28 nations gathered together into one place. That fits us. Praise the Lord, all peoples. Because God is the most valuable of all beings, he is therefore worthy of all praise and all our worship. Because he is the value, most valuable being in all of existence, can't say creation, that would exclude him. In all of existence, it is right and just and fitting for God to call us to praise him. He to call us to do it. If I was to call you to praise and worship me, that would be idolatry because I'm not the most valuable being in this room, never mind in the whole of existence. But God is the most valuable being in all of existence. So it is absolutely fitting for him to call us to praise him. And today I want from Paul's prayer to lay out for us all three things. Uh, number one, that God is worthy to be praised. And we'll understand how that is worthy to be praised, how that works. And the second part is this, that God is worthy to be praised for all of his perfections. And finally, that God is worthy to be praised who has blessed us. Now, as part of my study, what I do is I take the Greek text, and I take all my Greek tools and try and translate and work my way through and come up with an expanded translation, paraphrase, that gives me a good grasp of what the text is saying. So I'm going to read you. This is my little paraphrase of verse 3. Worthy to be identified, savored, and rejoiced over are the perfections of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, by speaking excellent words over us, has favored us by calling into being spiritual realities for us in Christ in the heavenly places. That's very long, I know. But there's two words in your English Bible that are they're identical in English, but in the Greek Bible, they have a very slight difference of ending. But if we don't dis differentiate what they mean, we could massively misunderstand what the text is saying. It's the word blessed or blessed. So we want to get through and understand that. So first thing you know, notice in that verse is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed comes from the word eulogetos. Or eulogetos hatheos is the full thing. It means praised. It means praiseworthy. A literal translation would be eulogetos uh, hatheos, worthy to be praised is God. And if you have an NASB, which is a great translation, you should see to be or blessed be. The B will be in italics because it's not actually in the original. 
There is no verb there. In fact, what each of God is, you've got an adjective and you've got a noun. Blessed God. But the thing of it is, is that adjective, by the force of its, of its meaning and the force of where it is, it becomes a command by its meaning. It's literally inviting us and compelling us to bless God. Blessed be God. We speak, well, the idea of the word there is to speak good words. Now, you may know a little bit of Greek or you may know a lot of Greek for all I know, but the word logos, most people will know what that means. It means Word or expression or idea. Hulogatos has as its core meaning the little word log right in the middle. And it literally means good words to be spoken about. So we have a eulogy. Funny thing, it's almost exactly that word. It means to speak good words about the person who has died. So eulogatos, he's saying is, blessed be God, good words be spoken about God, good words be spoken in respect and regard for God. Blessed be God, God is to be praised. We don't say God is loving and kind and wonderful in hope that he might be those things one day. We say them because they are true right here and right now. Sometimes you look at one of your kids and say, he's such a loving child and such a, a wonderful, caring child. And you, what you're really doing is you're, you're saying, I hope one day you be a loving child. I hope one day you'll become a caring child. I don't mean that about my kids. They already are. I'll say that carefully. But sometimes we say those things with a suggestion that that's what it should be. But when we speak good words, excellent words about God, all we can do is identify those things that are already true. He is loving. He is kind. He is wonderful. He is glorious. So Paul can launch into his message and say, Blessed God. And he's describing him worthy to be spoken good words about. That's our God. So we, number one, bless God by identifying his attributes, persons, and works. If you got your little note sheet there in your handout, there's a little list of one, two, three at the top there. You can follow along. So we bless God, number one, by identifying his attributes, his person, his work, which is why we must work very hard to know Scripture and know God, not just so that we can have knowledge packed away in the gray matter. It's so that we can express our praise and our worship. We can speak good words about God to each other, to ourselves, but most importantly of all, to God himself. We identify those things. Why we must use words and logic and superlatives when we worship. God is a God of realities, ordered, reasoned, and logical. It's why we read hard books about God. Maybe rephrase that. It's why we should read hard books about God. Because God needs, not God needs, that's wrong. God deserves our understand, our formulating in our mind the great truths of the Scripture. Why are the statements of faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith, why are they such carefully crafted documents? Because they're trying to put into human words, good words, expressions of praise about God and all of His doings, all of His attributes, all of His wonders into a statement that can be read and understood. John Calvin, this great statement, he said, the Bible is like God's uh, baby language. 
baby talk. God, in a sense, reduces all of the understanding about himself down to like a little child's chattering so we can grasp something of it. The wonders of who God is so far above us. We can only reach up and touch a little bit of it. The reason why I'm encouraging you as much as I can to be reading the Word of God, to memorizing the Word of God, is so that you can worship, you can pray, you can understand the deeper things of God, that you can lift up your hearts and speak good words about God, identify, and so on. We use good words spoken about God to be a worshiping people. We bless God, number two, by savoring His attributes, His person, His works. Don't just read and learn to know, read and learn and think to savor, to taste, to experience God's illustrations, God's works. Here's the illustration. Uh, Lyndon Porchek made one of these fantastic swan cakes uh, at the induction service. I've never seen anything like it. It's fantastic. We got to cut the cake like, you know, we got to get married and all that. And you know what? As much as we stood around and looked at the cake, and, and it was a beautiful thing, and the swans were beautifully made, and, and they'd done a great job. Linda and Porchek are not honored anywhere near as much as we just stand around and look at it. It's when we reach out and take a piece of that cake, and we put it in our mouths, and we begin to, to eat it. My mouth's watering. And, and it's just so good, right? They're honored by that when we, they hear us say, Mmm, that's so good. It tastes so good. You see, God's attributes, God's wonders, God's person isn't just honored and glorified in us when we talk about them. He is more glorified in us when we savor them, we enjoy them, we delight in them. To quote Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. How do we get that satisfaction? It's by tasting it. I think the psalmist it was who said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste. When we come into this place, if our worship is just wrote words, rolled off our tongues, and we're so, you know, we said them so many times, and it just, you know, like can you sing the hymn sometimes, you know? You sing it away. I won't sing. Uh, and your mind's miles away. It doesn't honor God. It's when we savor those things. We savor God by delighting in God. We savor God by experiencing the goodness of God and working hard with our minds to understand the deep, rich things of God, the deep truths of God. Thirdly, we bless God by rejoicing over His attributes, person, and His words, and His works. Someone commented last week that you, I preach with a certain amount of enthusiasm. I can't help it. This is the best stuff I've ever come across. There isn't anything more exciting than the truths of Scripture. You ask my family, I never get so wound up as when I'm preaching because it's such good stuff. It isn't just savored because you can savor something that's, you know, your Auntie Betty's fruitcake and you put it in your mouth and you're like, she mistook the sugar for salt, right? And it just, oh, it just tastes terrible. You're not rejoicing in that mouthful of food, I'll tell you. You're probably just looking for somewhere to spit it out as quick as you can. But when we taste of the good things of God and we savor them, we also rejoice in them. 
We delight in them. We bless God by rejoicing over those great truths. We bless God by rejoicing enthusiastically over God. We sing hymns. One of the wonderful things about the Christian faith is we come together and we sing the hymns of God. One of the, the things that boggles my mind about some of the old hymns, I love old hymns, don't get me wrong. Sometimes the tunes, you know, Bless the Lord, oh, no, no, no. it just sounds like a funeral dirge. And I go, no, the words don't match this tune. We ought to be singing with a rejoicing, joyful heart. The songs we sing and the tunes we pick ought to lift up our hearts and raise our emotions. Not that worship is pure emotion. Do not make that mistake. We ought to be lifting up our hearts in a joyful response to God. We bless God by identifying, recognizing the greatness of our God. We bless God by savoring the greatness of God. And we bless God by rejoicing in God. Now, I want you to notice something in between. uh, In verse 3, in my Bible, it's the end of the line. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, every time I read that text for many years, I would subconsciously, in my thinking, insert a because right in there. And so the text became, in my own understanding, it became, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He has blessed us. And immediately I would jump in to the reason stated and begin by savoring those as my grounds for worshiping God. But you know what? That's not what Paul did. He didn't put a because in there, and one does not belong in there. And we should not subconsciously put that in there so that our thinking starts to go, I bless God for all the things that he has done for me. We should bless God for the things he's done for us. It's not wrong. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He doesn't start off that way. There are two propositions in that statement that both deserve to be considered independently. The first one is this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or more literally, blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first proposition. The second one, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We must avoid putting a because in between there. And here's why. The subtle danger of inserting that is our worship will remain limited to the context of God's work toward us. Right? So praise God because He saved me. Praise God because He justified me. Praise God because He is sanctifying me. Praise God because of all His works towards me. And all of a sudden, all my praise becomes linked and tied to what God has done for me. And everything is about this relationship that we have. Now, to say it again, it is not wrong. It is right. It is just. It is good. We sang it this morning. We're going to sing it the last thing this morning about God's relationship with me. It's right and just and good to praise God for the things he has done for us. But the danger is that our worship will climb to a certain height and it will stop there. And I believe with all my heart that God designed us to glorify Him regardless of the relationship that we have with Him. We glorify Him beyond that for His very person, for His attributes. 
for the wonder of who he is. God is infinitely worthy of praise whether he saves me or not. What did the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? They're standing there by the edge of the fire and the king's all mad at them because they won't bow down at the image. They say, you know what? We believe our God can save us, but know this, O king, even if he does not save us, we will still trust him. You know what they're doing? They're saying regardless of whether or not God delivers us in a situation, God is still worthy to be praised because of his own person, because of his own attributes, because of him himself. Paul says, blessed be or blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma. That's a complete proposition. It's a complete statement on its own. And I believe that we as a people need to rise up and worship, not just because of the relationship we have with God. We should do that, but go beyond that. It's like this. Jesus dies on the cross. And the Roman century looks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. And meanwhile, over in the middle of Jerusalem is a temple, and in the middle of the temple is a priest there. I'm sure he's tendering the altars, and, and maybe he's looking after the, the lamps, the wicks, and he's trimming them and topping up the oil. Maybe he's looking at the table of showbread, and behind him he hears this terrible tearing sound, like tearing cloth. And he looks around behind him, and all of a sudden the veil has been torn in two from top to bottom. And you have no idea. I don't think any of us can grasp fully what it would have been like for that man to cautiously step forward and start to, you know, go up against the veil. Because you see, for his whole lifetime, he could not go beyond that veil. Only the high priest, only once a year, not without blood, could he go behind that veil. And as he went behind, smoke would rise up out of an incense with coals and incense, and the smoke would rise up and it would shield his view. But now he can see right through. I guarantee you, as he stepped behind that veil and he was right there and the Ark of the Covenant is sitting there, he didn't sit there and go, wow, I got in. This is so cool. I'm through the veil. And he maybe walked back and forth and kind of tested out a bit. You know what I think he did when he got behind the veil? I think he was staring. I think his mouth was hanging open as he saw the Ark of the Covenant. I know I'm crossing some historical lines here because the Ark of the Covenant probably wasn't there. It was taken out sometime before. But that's where the presence of God dwells. And my point to all of us is this. God has saved us not just to rejoice in the fact that we are saved. God has saved us and brought us into a relationship with Him that we might know Him. Know Him. I'll say it again. Know Him who He is, what He is like. We will spend all of eternity savoring the glories of God. And we can never walk all the way around God to look at every different aspect of God because there's just so much we couldn't possibly do it. But God has saved us that we might glory in the perfections of God. And listen, it breaks my heart sometimes because we are so quick to give thanks for what we have in Christ as far as our salvation, which is a good thing, but we never go beyond that. And the Bible is full of statements that go so far beyond that. And for the next whole point, I'm going to just take us through and walk through the Bible from Exodus to Ephesians. And I'll only skim across the top and look at some great texts 
Because even if we never get to our last point, which we may not, it doesn't matter. I want us to walk out of here with a sense of the greatness and the wonder and the glory of God that is beyond the fact that we have a relationship. It's just for Him. So here we go. Point number two. Worthy is to be praised is God for His perfections. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers, your fathers, has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. One of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. Worthy to be praised is the God who simply is. You cannot rightly say God was, and you cannot rightly say God will be, because God doesn't exist in the sense of time and space. All we can truly say about the existence of God is that God is. He is self-existent. He is self-sustaining. God is to be praised because He is utterly independent in His existence, His perfections, His decrees, and His works. There is no God like our God. He exists simply because He exists. Before all the eons of time began, He existed. There was no beginning and there will be no end. He simply is. You say, I can't get my head around that. No, you can't. You never will. All you can do is stand back and look at it and say, Wow, what a wonderful God we have. Blessed be God who simply exists. Notice, secondly, not Exodus, Exodus 15, verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed, doing wonders, worthy to be praised, is God for his persons. Look at what he says. Who is like you? Daryl and I used to be elders together at Casey Bible Church. We look somewhat similar. We're both reasonable height. We both wear glasses. We both got gray hair. He's got more, and I do. I will point that out quickly. He's a great guy. I'm not. It's, we're, we're a little bit alike. You could say, who are the elders in this church? They'd say, well, the two gray-haired old guys at the front. That's me and Daryl. And there's someone similar to me. But when you go looking around for one who is like God, there is no one like him. You cannot find one to compare him to. There is nothing that you can do that say, well, he's sort of like this, but not like that. Moses, I think it is, is saying, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And the intrinsically implied answer is, There is none like you, O God. You are majestic in holiness. There is none like you in all of your works. Your works are awesome in glorious deeds, doing and working wonders. Blessed be God. Worthy to be praised is God. There is none like our God. Job 11, 7-9. Most of these come from the Old Testament, by the way. If you're looking to do a study on the nature of God, you will find the Old Testament is absolutely rich in texts like these. Job 11, 7-9, he says this, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. What can you do? It's deeper than Sheol. What can you know? 
Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Who is God? He is God who is worthy to be praised because he is the infinite God. Job declares, it's impossible to find out all there is to know about God. But knowing God's infiniteness, he is an infinite God. That should never hinder us from striving to learn and know all that our minds, our logics, our reasons can comprehend of God and to express those things. One of the things I noticed is really interesting about these descriptions in Scripture. They're often stated in negatives. There is none like you. Who is like our God? There is none like Him. You can't measure the length. You can't. It's all negative stated. You know why? Because you can't say it in a positive because there's nothing that's positive that works to do it. You have to simply say, he's not like this and he's not like that and he's not like the other thing. And you can't extend and you can't understand the full limits of who God is. And that's one of the things that ought to draw up our hearts in worth, in in praise and worship for God. Worthy to be praised is our God. Psalm 33 verse 11, he says this. The psalmist says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Worthy to be praised is God, whose counsel and will are unaffected or swayed by anyone but himself. By his own counsel, by his own purpose, by his own will, he has put into place all of the things that are happening. God has purposed to save us. He purposed to adopt us. He purposed to predestine us. All those things happen in the counsel of God's will. And nobody can affect the God's will. Nobody can sway the mind of God. And some of you are immediately thinking, so why do I pray? That's a very big question with a very long answer. But simply put it like this, we pray because God planned and purposed not only to put the situations around us, but he also put us in there and purposed and planned that we should pray that he might answer those prayers and carry on with what he intended. So our prayers are part of the purposes and plans of God to bring about whatsoever he desires. But his counsel stands. Nobody can sway the mind of God as to change his mind. The Bible talks about how God is the immutable God. He is unchanging. He will never, isn't that great? The same God that Moses dealt with up on the mountain, the consuming fire, the glory of the holiness of God that came down and the mountain shook because of it. That's the God that we come to worship today in this place. The Bible says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The, the plans of his heart To all generations, worthy to be praised is God. Psalm 115, 1-3 says this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Worthy to be praised by God himself is God. You see what the psalmist is saying? Not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. He's speaking that to God. He's saying, God, you give your own name glory. 
The psalmist is calling God to glorify and praise his own name. Worthy to be praised is God who does all that pleases him. Whatever God does pleases him to the absolute extent. One of the verses of scripture that ought to make every person just pause and almost stagger for disbelief comes out of Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And it said, Yea, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's my Savior we're talking about. It pleased God. It was part of God's counsel and purposes and will. And it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. I don't know how we can even get our hands around that. There is a song we sing at times. It says, um, Above all, above all else, he thought of me when he's on the cross. There's a line in that song that just I just don't like. It's the idea that the Father sees him and turns his face away. Theologically, biblically, it's wrong. Because the Father did not turn his face away. The Father allowed the full weight of the wrath of the anger of his face to fall upon his Son. And he was pleased to do it. Why? Because he was rescuing and redeeming a people. Why? That's one little reason. Beyond that reason, he was declaring the holiness of his person. He was declaring the glory of who he is as he allowed his son to absorb the full weight of the wrath of God. It pleased God to bruise him. And all we can do with that is we can look at it and we can identify it and we can savor it and we can rejoice over it, but I don't know that we will ever fully understand what that means. All that the Lord God does pleases him. He is worthy to be praised because of that. Isaiah 40, Isaiah, sorry, 40 and verse 8. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? Worthy to be praised is God who is independent of all creatures. He is unique and solitary. There is none like our God. There is none to whom we may justly or rightly compare our God. I read somewhere years ago in a book. God saved us because he was lonely. I took a black felt marker and I scratched that line right out of the book. That is absolutely wrong. It's almost, it is heresy, really. It's saying that God needed us. Like we had to, we had to be there to complete him, to give him a, a worthy existence, give him an enjoyable existence. God was infinitely happy and infinitely delighted in himself for all the regions, all the realms of eternity prior to creating us. He did not need us. That's wrong. He is absolutely, perfectly complete and happy and joyful in his solitariness as God. But in grace, we're going to see this next week, in massive grace, he delighted in us enough to bring us to him so he, we might see the glories of who he is and wonder and praise him. Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace affliction for my own sake. Comma, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
That is the most God-centered verse in the whole Bible. Isaiah is saying, listen, for God, for his own purposes, for his own sake, he has done all these things. Worthy to be praised is God who is most concerned for his own glory, for his own persons, and for his own name's sake. Not just for us, but for his own. The Hebrew does it twice. You say, why is that? Because in Hebrew, whenever you repeat the thing, it gives an emphaticness, an emphasis to it. For my own sake. Listen, for my own sake. For my sake, I have done this. My name should not be profane. My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for his own glory. He's jealous for us to come and lift up and praise his name. And it's fitting because he is the most valuable being in all of existence. Worthy to be praised is God. God is jealous for the for the fame of the glory of his name. Listen, God saves us not merely for our sake. God saves us for his own sake. And that's why... When we worship, and when worship stays at the level of praise the Lord who saved me, it's in danger of missing out in all the heights it could and should ascend to. Again, it's not wrong to say praise the Lord who saved me. The Bible says that. It's not wrong to sing it. Their hymn book is full of those kind of thoughts. They're right. But it's like going halfway up Everest and going, wow, look at the view. Keep going. It gets better. Only in the case of us and God, it gets infinitely better. Keep climbing to the heights. Keep striving to know more about God that you can identify and praise God deeper and deeper and deeper. Or if you like, higher and higher and higher. I'm convinced the moment that faith gives way to sight and we step into the presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, every thought about me will go gone. I'll be so stunned and so awed and so amazed at the person of my Savior. I won't have the slightest thought for me anymore. All I'll think of is there he is. God made flesh. God saved us to see him, to glorify him, to be enthralled with him and him alone. Yes, a thousand times yes, we must praise God for our salvation. But let's add to that. Let's enhance, let's fill it out by worshiping and praising God for all his manifold perfections. The moment that faith gives way to sight and we see him, every thought about ourselves will just fly away. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I long for that day to come. I just want to see the Lord. See Him like He is. And realize that my puny and pathetic thinking about God was so, so far short. And yet in grace, God delights when we praise Him. Yet in grace, God enjoys it when we come together and with hearts united in love for Him and love for each other, we lift up our voices and we express with our voices our wonder and our appreciation and our praise for God. Last verse, Romans eleven thirty three to 36. You might even know this one. Oh, the depths 
of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has given to him that it might be paid back again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Worthy to be praised is God whose wisdom, his knowledge, his judgments, his ways, his mind, his resources are infinite, independent, and unsearchable. So much. Worthy to be praised is God who is the source of all things. He planned and purposed everything. Worthy to be praised is God who is the means of all things. He created them by calling them into existence. Worthy to be praised is God who is the recipient of all things for his use, his delight, and for his joy. The very last thing I want to do is denigrate or belittle the living God. I think you'd figure that out. But sometimes I think that God is like a happy child with his creation. He just plays with it and delights in it. And rejoices in it. It's not like God is is repulsed by it. The sin of man angers and infuriates God. But the Bible makes get makes gets the idea across, especially in Job, the lot of chapters of Job. You read those and you get the idea of God who just enjoys his creation. He made it, he purposed it, he he was also the end user for his own delight and in his own joy. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you know what the marvelous grace of God in all this is? This has just staggered my mind. I was sitting there, listening to a message on uh, Wednesday or Thursday in the office there, and um, I was talking about Copernican moments, those moments, those eureka moments, those aha moments when you just kind of get your handle on some great truth of Scripture. I said, Lord, I'd love to have one of those moments when you just kind of peel back the little corner of something, some truth, and I kind of go, oh, yeah, that's so cool. And you know what I saw this week? In us doing this, in us looking to worship and honor and praise God for all of these perfections, all of these incredible things, His immutability, His immensity, His infinity, all those other things, you know what it is? That as we strive to see them, you know what the Bible says? We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. God uses the fact that we strive and long to see those perfections. And as we do them, we behold them with the eyes of the faith, of the heart. God does a work in us to change us and make us more like himself. That's grace. That's amazing. It is for God's purposes, it is for God's glory that we strive to know and savor and rejoice in those perfections of God. But beyond, not beyond that, but as part of that and as like a consolation to that, as we strive to know and understand them, God is using the fact that we are beholding them to change us and make us like the Lord Jesus. Isn't that amazing? 
I want to just carry on, keep going through text after text after text after text and just keep unpacking it for as long as I possibly could. But I know that there is an AGM, I know there's lunch, and so we got to move on. But did you get the point? Identify those things, savor them, rejoice in them, delight in them. Notice, last point, thirdly, God is worthy to be praised who blessed us. Notice the text, Ephesians 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We were looking mostly at that one word, hulagatos, blessed. Now this one here. He has blessed us, has a very similar word, same in English, but in Greek it is hulogesas. It changes the form just slightly. And the idea there is it's blessed, but it's from the other direction. In the first occurrence of blessed, God is blessed. It's an adjective. It describes God. In the second occurrence of it, God blesses us. It's a participle. It's a verb form, meaning that God is descri- it's describing God's actions towards us. In the first occurrence, we humans cannot create spiritual realities about God. We can only identify them. Because God is perfect. He is uncreated. He's already complete. He's already perfect, infinite, and so on. All we can do is strive to identify those things and say, God is great. God is holy. God is unchangeable. God is infinite, and so on. We're identifying things that are already true. Now, the problem is, in the second occurrence, God cannot identify in us things that are already true, like spiritualities, because there aren't any. So what does he do? The beautiful thing is, God using words again. We speak good words about God, and God speaks good words over us. The difference is, I identify what I see in God, but God, when he speaks good words over me, he calls into being those things which are not. What did the Bible say? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, spoke it, let there be light. And what was there? Light. You say, yeah, we know. We've read Genesis 1. It's no big deal. No, no, it's a huge big deal. It's a massive deal. You know why? Because what God is doing is, through the power of the spoken word, He is creating, He's calling into existence something that did not exist prior to that moment. The power of the word of God spoken has power to command, to create what it commands. Let there be light. And there's light. He created it by the power of spoken word. God blessed us. With every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. You get it? He spoke good words over us. And as he did, he spoke and called into creation things, spiritual realities about us that were not true unless God had spoken them. So then he goes on. He says, even as he chose us. I'll use my own name. Nelson. chose. He predestined. He spoke that out. He adopted. He spoke that out. He redeemed. He forgave. All those things were created by the power of the spoken word in eternity past. He created spiritual realities for us and in us. 
by which is he blessed us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, bestowed favor on us by calling into existence truths and realities that are spiritual in nature. Now notice there are three prepositions that follow right behind that. First, there is number one, uh, God has blessed us in Christ. Secondly, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And thirdly, God has blessed us in the heavenly places. Three prepositional phrases, all of them extremely important. You can't have one, you can't take one out. It won't work. Number one, God has blessed us in Christ. All the blessings that we have been blessed with have their context completely in the person of Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, none of those spiritual blessings are ours to enjoy. Those who are lost, wicked, sinful, unrepentant, rejecters of God and His grace and mercy, they will not experience spiritual blessings of election and predestination and adoption and redemption and forgiveness and so on. Those blessings are all found solely within the context of Jesus Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, right? The old is gone, the new has come. He has to be in Christ. Those blessings are all there. Fellowship with Christ includes the blessings of all those spiritual realities he's talking about. Identification with Christ includes all those blessings. And suffering with Christ includes all those blessings. You can't have them outside of Christ. Notice, secondly, the nature of our blessings. They're spiritual blessings. God has blessed all of His creation with general blessings. Now, I think some people call it the common grace of God. So Jesus talks about how on both the good and the evil, rain will fall. On both the good and evil, light and warmth from the sun falls on them. Good man and evil man both enjoy some of those common graces, common blessings of God. But the spiritual blessings which Paul here speaks of cannot be experienced and enjoyed outside of Christ. They are spiritual realities. They are blessings that are mediated to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. God planned, if this is a very simple way to understand Ephesians 1, God planned these things in times past. The Son, by His death on the cross, brought them into being, enabled them, purchased them, is a good way to think about it. The Spirit of God mediates what Christ purchased to individual believers. So the spiritual blessings that we have of forgiveness and redemption and all those things... They're mediated through the power of the Holy Spirit who made us alive. The Father and the Spirit are both ascribed with that. They both made us alive and they give those blessings to us. They bring them to bear in our lives. They're spiritual blessings. All men enjoy something of the general blessings of God, but only those in Christ Enjoy the spiritual blessings of God. Thirdly, notice the realm of our blessings, the heavenly places. Paul is describing the spiritual realm. God is speaking of the realm in which Christ was seated. Notice verse 20 of chapter 1. He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now what does that mean? 
It means it's the spiritual realm in which God resides and abides and exists. It's where he dwells in power and great glory. The blessings that God has blessed us with, don't miss this, they are only fully experienced in the heavenlies. You say, we don't get any now? Oh, yes, we do. (laughs) That's a beautiful thing. The Spirit of God is a deposit. It's a down payment towards the inheritance we're going to receive. So all the blessings of being chosen in Christ and predestined for adoption as sons, having redemption through His blood, having forgiveness of sin, all those things, we experience something of them now. But the full experience of those things will be when faith gives way to sight and we are face to face with God. We will know the full realization of our adoption as sons and daughters when we stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're blessings in the heavenly places. Does that mean we can't enjoy it now? Oh, yes, we can. And praise God, we can. Praise God, we get to enjoy those beautiful things, a little taste of them now. It's like you walk by the kitchen and, you, and we had, we had uh, turkey dinner. Uh, we're Canadians. We eat turkey. Uh, Aussies don't seem to eat turkey as much as we did in Canada. And so we had some friends over and... and uh, we made a big turkey dinner, and Heather loves to make turkeys. There's two big birds, and we and I'm carving away, right? And and as I'm carving, I'm making sure the meat is well cooked. Numerous times, I just take a little bit, just making sure, yeah, it's cooked. Just making sure, yeah, it's cooked. And then, of course, we can bring out the the candied yams and the mashed potatoes, and then and I'm just making sure everything's cooked. You know, I'm concerned about my guests, right? I'm a loving kind of guy. You know what I'm doing? I'm sampling a little bit now. As soon as that turkey meat hits your mouth, you know, and the juices start, and oh, man, it's good. And, and you start to eat that turkey. I know what the meal is going to be like because I've had a little sampling of it. And the reality is that this life we enjoy, as it were, a sampling of all the blessings of God that still await us. Our adoption and all those other things. But you know what the cool thing is? When we get to heaven and we step through, I don't think there's pearly gates, but when we step into the presence of the living God and we see God as He is, we will experience the full reality of them, but I don't think we'll give them a second thought. Because as we step into that moment and we see God as He is, And we see the immensity, the infinity. We see all of those attributes of God wonderfully displayed. And we spend the whole rest of existence getting to know a little bit of them. We'll have gotten in that spot. I'm running out of words to say. Amazing, running out of words to say. You understand what I'm trying to say? Blessed be God. Worthy to be praised is God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What an amazing God we have. What an astounding God we have. And He is worthy of our praise. There's so much more I want to say, but I just we don't have time. We'll move on.
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing one more hymn, and then we'll sing our benediction together. Would you stand with me, and we'll pray together, please. Loving Father, we come before you. And Father, we do give thanks and we do rejoice in our salvation. But Father, we long also to see beyond just what you have done for us, but to see you, to know you. Father, to know all of the perfections. I know, Father, we'll never know them all. But Father, I plead with you for us as a church that you would, as we pour our hearts and our minds into the Scriptures to know you, that you would pull back the veil a little bit here and there. And Father, allow us to capture some of those deep, amazing thoughts about you. Father, we long to be a people who are absolutely enraptured with our God, who are so in love with our Savior that all thoughts about ourselves fade to the background. Father, we long to be a people that worship you in a way that is fitting. And Father, it saddens our hearts that we know that the limitations of time and space and human frailty will prevent that. But Father, as much as we can, we lift up our hearts to you this morning. And we offer you, Father, our thanks. We offer you, Father, our rejoicing, our joy in the living God, our joy in you. Father, we rejoice that you are worthy to be praised. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you, Father, that you turned and over us you spoke good words and you called into being our adoption, our election, our predestination. Father, you called into being our forgiveness. Father, we thank you and we rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ went to a cross and purchased our salvation. He purchased all those things for us. Father, we rejoice in him. God made flesh. Father, we also think back at that verse again in Isaiah, that it pleased you to bruise him. Oh, God, cannot imagine, cannot grasp with a frail human mind what those words mean. Father, we do know that in all of those things, you were working for your glory and for our good. Father, we rejoice in them and we say thank you. And we say it in Jesus' name, amen.